Life Happens with Pimelo Mutine. Pimelo Mutine on SAFM. On SAFM. Thank you so much for staying with us. So South Africa has the world's largest cohort of young people living with HIV. More than 300,000 adolescent aged between 10 and 19 are living with the virus. Dr. Rebecca Hodes is a recipient of the University of Cape Town Social Responsiveness Award for 2019. She joins us now on the line to really unpack how all of this has uh, has changed the lives of these young people. We come a long way in South Africa with treatment for HIV and AIDS. Dr. Rebecca Hodes, thank you so much for making the time to talk to us this afternoon. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Pinello. It's my great pleasure. Thank you for having me on the show. So it's an important thing to distinguish that these were vertically infected young people, correct? Dr. Hodes? Pinello, sorry, I'm, I'm with you. They were indeed virtually infected, vertically infected. Um, but the study combined both vertically infected and horizontally infected pe- uh, mm. people, adolescents, young people. That means in, in the terms that we use in a more popular sense rather than in a programming or you know, healthcare sense, mm-hmm. people, youngsters who are infected via antenatal transmission, mm-hmm. So the transmission of HIV from mother to child, Mm. either via labor or from breastfeeding, Mm. we would consider that to be vertical transmission. Horizontal transmission is more from behavior. So usually Mm. it's to do with unprotected sex. Mm. Now the question, the interesting question when it comes to adolescents is whether or not they can consent to sex. So whether horizontal transmission, behavioral transmission of HIV um, has been always been a crime. Mm-hmm. If they have consented to have sex, then they might have become HIV positive through consensual sex, mm. or it may be through sexual sexual assault. Mm. And that's yeah, it's a naughty bundle that. And I think Pinello, that's one of the key challenges of healthcare programming, especially for young people, is that we assume mm. that people born with HIV have the same needs as those adolescents, teenagers who become infected with HIV. And actually, they're two very distinct groups in terms of their healthcare needs and their experiences of medicines. Often who are behaviorally infected present in healthcare facilities when they're pregnant. They're often, you know, young women who go to the healthcare, healthcare service for antenatal care for a booking and they get an HIV test at that self-same clinic appointment. So they learn that they're pregnant and HIV positive in one appointment. Mm. And then our policy, of course, is test and treat. So they're put onto antiretroviral treatment. So it's a huge amount to go through in a single appointment. Whereas people who are born with HIV, and thank goodness, thank you to the astonishing work Mm. that's been done by the government, by clinicians, by HIV activists, everyone who's been involved in this absolutely historic program of rolling out antiretroviral treatment, you know, this is one of the biggest public health interventions in history. Mm. So we've achieved, as you've said, enormous, enormous ground. We've really made ground Mm. after the dark days of President Thabo and Becky's AIDS denialism and the misinformation that we had in the Jacob Zuma presidency about having a shower after you've had sex, that nonsense. We then saw a concerted government commitment 
it's rolling out the best possible scientific means of treating HIV, and those are antiretrovirals. So the young people in our study who are born with HIV are still alive because they have been able to access HIV treatment, but often they have lost their parents, they are, they've lost their moms often, sometimes they've lost their fathers too, so they're double orphans. Mm-hmm. They've already maybe had some opportunistic infections, they've had TB, they've had something like meningitis, you know, or pneumonia. Mm-hmm. So they've had opportunistic infections, other kinds of sicknesses, mm-hmm. and they might have already been put onto antiretroviral treatment that might be what's keeping them alive. So they've got different experiences in young people who find out their HIV status when they go for a pregnancy test or present in a clinic. And we need to make sure that the services are taking into account the different experiences and needs of different kinds of HIV-positive young people. You you make such important points because... One wonders when the news is given to somebody who just, you know, was part of a risky behavior. So, I mean, you said there's also a a distinction between those people that some of them, it may have been consensual. We need to respect that. And others, yes, it may have been criminal activity. So I'm sure there's a distinction in how they even receive the news and how they act on it. But I'm also wondering about those who, let's say, that consensual group, that what has gone wrong between the messaging that we've been working so hard at, that education drive Mm -hmm. that we were speaking about earlier, that has been phenomenal, that somehow has not landed with this group of young people? You're right. The messaging, it hasn't had the impact that we had hoped for and that we've been fighting doggedly for for the last decades of HIV activism and advocacy across the sectors, across the Department of Health, basic education, social development, researchers, activists, the NGO sector. What what we've seen, according to the South African Household Prevalence Surveys, those are the largest surveys that are conducted by the Human Science and Research Council, led by Professor Leikner Simbai and others. The latest surveys show that rather than strengthening and increasing understanding and awareness of HIV, we're seeing a reverse. So the the knowledge and understanding of what HIV is and how it's transmitted is actually worsening across the population, according to the latest HSRC findings. That's an incredibly damning finding. And although we say people know how HIV is transmitted, if you look at the school curriculum, and this is a major kind of objective and commitment of the Department of Basic Education, of course, COVID has come and catapulted Mm. many of the aspirations and and the programs that that they had committed to, but we cannot see this ground. Mm. There was a commitment from the Department of Basic Education to make comprehensive sexualities education available in schools. Mm. And we saw an absurd backlash from yeah. a, a, you know, very conservative yeah. uh, groups who didn't want children to learn about sex in schools. Mm. But at the same time, they're learning about sex then from pornography mm. or learning from elder elders who are potentially not giving them the right information. Mm. So we've got, we need to improve that. It's crucial that we improve the curriculum. We need comprehensive, evidence-based non-judgmental, empowering information about how young people can protect themselves from HIV and other sexually transmitted infections. And beyond that, 
We need those young people to know how to behave once they're positive. Because mm. if you're pushing HIV prevention, what about the third of million adolescents who are already positive? That boat has sailed, and it's very exclusive then to just assume, you know, that's, that, that, that they are a lost cause. Sure. So we have got to change the messaging in schools. We've got to be evidence-based, non-judgmental, and clear about this. And we've got to push because we've lost ground on a public understanding of HIV transmission. Mm. MM is calling us from Durban. Good afternoon. Thank you so much for calling, MM. Yes, uh, thank you so much for a beautiful show. Um, and, and, and your guest is providing very informative, informative information to us. Um, but I just wanted to raise this point. Uh, your guest must shy away from you know, contaminating such powerful information, such important information with uh, political swipes or speech that is political undertone. The attack on President Mbege and the attack on President Zuma when it comes to this issue, I felt it was absolutely unnecessary for her to do that. Because she must then go ahead and speak about the PH and the, the health system that he left for, black, for, for African people, which are mostly affected by these things. So when she's presenting these cases, those political undertones must be put aside and she must continue to do the spelling work of giving us facts, important information, and not enter into a political terrain because it will contaminate everything that she's doing. I don't want to address it, but thank you so much for the information that has been provided on the show. You want to respond to that, Dr. Hordes? Thank you, MM. I appreciate that very deeply. And of course, you know, if research becomes too political, it loses its empirical value. We try to be as objective as we can while understanding that whatever we find in research is in a way a social construction. The questions that we ask, how they are translated, if we're working in different languages, how we analyze the findings, that is a very social process. And HIV is, of course, extremely political. It's always been a political issue. Um, from the 1981, when the virus was identified, it was first identified among young gay men in the United States, and it's had that stigma of being a gay disease or a disease of immorality of people who use drugs, in Eastern Europe, of young black people in South Africa. You know, the the nickname that people had was that it, within South Africa's um, different, different kinds of groups of information and understanding, the Monica AIDS was popularly described as an Africana intervention to deprive us of sex. So there's this idea that this is a, you know, some people think this is a gay disease. Some people think it's a black disease. And it's, it's, it's a form of othering to say that it's something that's out there, unprotected from this. But a virus, as we've seen with COVID, a virus only knows cells. And the wrong thing that we've done with HIV is to teach young people about it. And their incidence rates are high. The highest incidence means the greatest number of people who become infected with HIV are young women, ages 19 and 24. So despite all of the work that's gone in, and that's partly a socio-structural challenge, you can give someone all the information in the world, but if they don't have a job and they don't have an income, what power do they have to really take control of their lives and to direct their destiny? And this is also a crisis of unemployment and a crisis of poverty and inequality that, that we are facing. HIV is so fascinating because it's 
not just about a disease, it's about every other aspect of the society. As it stands, we teach young people about HIV on the same page as we teach them about sexually transmitted infections and unwanted pregnancies. We don't deal adequately with reproduction. Everyone should know, girls and boys, should understand the basics of menstruation, the reproductive cycle, understand how babies are created. And we need to take out this moral language, you know, of the right, particular right way to do things. It's got to be sanctioned by God. South Africa is an overwhelming Christian country, and that's understood. That's to give biological facts, and we don't have enough understanding. We see very high rates of, of unwanted pregnancies among young women. Women understand their bodies and are able to access contraception. They must be able to take charge. Let me, let me, let me ask you to just pause there, uh, Dr. Hodes, because really we, we're struggling with that line. I just want to make sure that we can clear that line and maybe get you on a better one. Call in, okay? I think it's, it's a very important conversation, and let's hear what you have to say. 0891-104-207. Here, there, and everywhere. SAFM 104.6 FM in Kimberley. Dr. Rebecca Hodes is a director of AIDS and Societal Research Unit Center for Social Science Research University uh, at the University of Cape Town. I beg your pardon. And we really were discussing quite a, a number of issues. And uh, that interesting call that came through earlier, I, I found that interesting because Dr. Hodes, I think part of what South Africa right now is is doing is insisting that conversations are are, are complete. And there was for a long time uh, a call for studies and maybe, you know, just affirmations or at least even just to say it didn't happen where HIV and AIDS for many people was a disease that was given to a lot of black people in South Africa, uh, deliberately so by by the apartheid regime. And those questions have never been answered. So one can understand the sensitivities, as you said, you know, of, of politics and, and things like diseases like AIDS. Absolutely. One can understand that. And the suspicion of biomedicine has a fascinating history. And with the experiments that have been done, the most famous example in history is of the Tuskegee syphilis experiment, which was done on African-American men. It was to study the quote-unquote natural evolution, in essence, of syphilis. And so even though we had treatment for syphilis, the study was allowed to run up until the 1970s in the United States. That's extremely recent in the course of research. You know, we saw after the Second World War with revelations of the horrors of Nazi medical experiments, we saw a new regime of kind of ethical research conduct. And this has been, it's been regulated within, within global laws like the Helsinki Accords that you can't do research that violates people's safety and health. And there's a big debate at the moment. It's pretty contentious. The University of Cape Town just published new research ethics protocols, and they're being hotly debated by academics. Mm. Because in a way, one never knows what what the findings will be of one's research. And once it's out there in the public, Mm. you can't be responsible for everyone that's, Mm. you know, for any possible impact that it may have. Um, This history of biomedicine and suspicion 
in South Africa, um, there was a suggestion. There's only ever been one, one, uh, I suppose, archive of this, which is in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission accounts um, of an interview with Dr. Bassan, you know, who was called Dr. Death. And there are lots of different, it's a, a frightening history, but it's also a very alluring one. And there, there seems to have been confirmation that in at least one incident, the apartheid state in a shadow form, I don't think this was ever brought mm. before Parliament, yep. um, was meant to, um, to appoint people who were known to be HIV positive and to have them working as sex workers to infect people with HIV, as many people as they could. So an interesting shadow history, and it, it's been very brilliantly explored in the South African literature in books like Nicoli Natchez's The AIDS Conspiracy. Mm-hmm. She's traced the evolution of these kinds of conspiracies. In essence, Pinello, the, the historical record shows that may have happened, but it's probably was something very, very small scale. Um, that doesn't mean that it wasn't abhorrent. But there isn't a rich evidence base of these kinds of machinations. Or it does give people potentially a way of finger, po- finger pointing or of not changing their behaviors. You know, the, most of HIV in South Africa is transmitted through sexual behaviors, mm. and it wasn't done as um, a means of biological warfare. It was. It, it happened. Let me let me take. Oh, that line is just failing us. Uh, let me go to Anonymous. Uh, maybe we can just try and, and, and get it sorted out. Anonymous, thank you so much for calling us. You're calling from Bulukwane. Hi. Hi. Hello. Thank you Good so much. Morning. for calling. You, know, uh, you know, I'm listening to the talk today, and I, I'm tempted to agree with the last caller that um, uh, she, for us to listen to her, she must not politicize the, the narrative. You know, uh, and we must not distort history. We we know very well what was the argument of uh, former Tavombe, uh, President Tavombeki about uh, the HIV literature. Uh, um, and we all know that uh, it has been an ANC policy decision that was taken during the Mbeki era to 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 one of the things to roll out an, 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 an antiretroviral program, and uh, and uh, it was not a Zuma error. But what I wanted to say is, uh, we, we 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 I think we, our weakness uh, uh, in the in the sector is to intellectualize the whole thing, and uh, ordinary people are missing the point. You know, uh, she's been talking, but uh, um. I haven't had uh, 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 the actual literature that should come to an ordinary person about HIV and AIDS. I think I'll leave it there. Okay. Um, Michael, you're calling from PE. Good afternoon. Um, I'm the last person to defend anything that happened during apartheid, but uh, this um, theory that the apartheid regime was actually responsible for spreading AIDS. I have to say that's a new one. Is it a new one for you, Michael? Absolutely brand new, and I, <laughs> I really don't know Michael, where, don't where leave, the. Don't leave, I Michael. Think, don't I think leave the me. lady. Sorry, if you don't mind. 
I think the Amor, lady Michael, needs to can, present I, some hard evidence in Michael, that regard. Michael, I've got to go to the headlines. Can you stay on the line? I'm not trying to cut you off. Can you stay on the line? Do you mind? I'll stay on the line. That's Please fine. do. Thank you. Ma- Michael there is calling from PE. Um, I wonder if you heard that, uh, Dr. Hordes, uh, before I go to the headlines so that we can just make sure that you heard it and then we can come back to that. Were you able Thank to you. Hear I heard it loud and clear. All right. I look forward to speaking with Michael shortly. All right. So, so Dr. Rebecca Hordes is a director of AIDS and Society Research Unit Center for the Social Science Research Unit at the University of Cape Town. And we're discussing really, I mean, this this conversation has moved um, to an <laughs> unexpected direction. But we, we were meant to be discussing HIV and AIDS, uh, which is prevalent between for, for, for adolescent children between the ages of 10 and 19. Some really interesting things have come up and uh, Michael who's calling us from PE is saying that he's heard it he's heard a lot of stuff but the first for him is that the uh, the, the apartheid regime uh, affected people and infected people with HIV and AIDS this is interesting so if you want to be a part of it is uh, the number to dial is 0891-104-207 or you can also call us on 0614-104-107 your take on this is it the first time that you're hearing it's certainly not the first time I'm hearing it from myself 2.30 let's go to Utila Saku for the very latest in headlines on SABC here there and everywhere SAFM 106.2 FM in Dohoyando. All right, so it seems that we we lost Michael. Maybe he'll call back. Um, that was that's a pity that we lost Michael. But Dr. Rebecca Hordes um, has said that she heard the question, and she, you know, your 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 comments on that call, uh, Dr. Hordes. Thank you, and thank you, Michael. It's it's so important to engage about these these kinds of key questions and to challenge misinformation when it arises. And um, this this idea that. AIDS was a biological uh, weapon, that it was engineered by the CIA or by the Soviets. Now, of course, we see echoes with allegations that COVID or SARS-CoV-2 was a biological weapon that was engineered in Chinese labs. And this idea that AIDS was a means of biological warfare used by the apartheid government is is extremely popular and it's very, very widespread. So I'm kind of surprised. I wonder who Michael's been speaking to or hasn't been. And um, this is a this is a very widespread idea. Okay, um, Michael is back. Michael is, Michael okay, is oh, hi, back, Michael. which is great. My, Michael, I wonder if you heard that. So Dr. Hordes was saying this is certainly not new. This is a widespread information. She's surprised that you didn't know about this. <laughs> well, I'd love to see the journal articles or the hard evidence. Uh, to that effect, okay, I, I keep Michael, pretty much abreast of most uh, things, saying, and it's, it's a new theory, yes. it's a rather it's, crackpot it's a, it's theory. A, it's personally. an old theory. It's an old theory, and I'm not saying theory is empirical. What I learned was there is only one trace in the TRC's incredibly extensive archives, well, and that's <clears> part of the testimony about the Basan. Chandra Gould who is a researcher at the Institute for Security Studies, has written about this copiously, as have colleagues like Nikoli Natras. Well, and it's a we've, theory, we've but, but the as you've said, it, goes, it doesn't go beyond being a theory. Um, it, it just is, is just one theory. There is some evidence, as I said, in the TRC archives. And recently, there was a documentary that got a lot of airplay, which is, again, 
Anything in the TRC archives is no more than an allegation. Uh, And I really think you need to be very cautious before you make such allegations. Uh, And it should should be something more than just a theory. You do need to present the hard evidence. I'll, I'll take that on board. Thank you. Michael, I mean, are you are you are you open to looking this up? I mean, you said it was the first time you've heard it. Uh, yes, I'll I'll Google on, on it, and but you know, you get so many crackpot uh, theories mm-hmm. that are doing the rounds. Uh, so mm-hmm. I wouldn't I wouldn't base terribly much on the fact that there's there are crackpot theories out there. One one needs to examine and analyze the hard evidence. Yes, but what I'm asking absolutely. is that are you, are you open to going looking more, for, for that information? More than open. I'm open to being convinced. Okay. Michael there, thanks very much Thank for that you. call. She's, he's calling us from PE. Monica, you're calling from Cape Town. Good afternoon. Um, good afternoon, Penelo. Good afternoon, Rebecca. Hello, Monica. Hi. Just Hi. to take the discussion back to the lesson. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, I was wondering if you can go into um, like the gendered nature of like having at mm. least I think sixty percent or seventy percent of the infections um, among young girls mm. compared to young boys, mm. and if you've seen any um, evidence yet from the conditional cash transfer trials mm. that were running, is is there anything to kind of show whether that has had an impact mm. on? Mm. Transmission dynamics. Very good point. And risk uh, behavior. Very, very good, good point. Dr. Hordas? Thank you, Monica, for that wonderful question. Monica, I think what was so great about this study was that we did manage to find a link between yeah. young people who could access social grants and to show how that was related to improved adherence to medicine. Mm. Okay, so yeah. for those families who could access a social grant, they had better outcomes when it came to food. You know, it's, it is a myth, much like there's other misinformation around, but it is very widely believed mm. that people can't take HIV medicines on an empty stomach. Mm. The nurses will recommend that you do take them, no matter if there's food in your belly or not. Mm-hmm. But in popular practice, People don't like to take ARVs in an empty stomach. So with a a household grant, mostly it's the child support grant, then people have have access, they're able to buy subsistence, food for their families, and through the longitudinal component of the study, we were able to trace this association between receiving the child support grant and better adherence to medicines. So a social intervention became a healthcare intervention, which was really, really exciting. Yeah, that, that sounds um, amazing. But, but was there a, mm. any further studies into, as she said, transactional sex? And how, and how has that shifted uh, the demographics of who is infected? Mm, absolutely, yes. Uh, you know, transactional sex... It's a, it's a difficult term mm. because what do, we def- what do we mean by that? Do we mean that you're transacting with cash mm-hmm. or is it that you might get food or transport mm. or childcare, right? And, you know, what is transactional sex? Mm. Um, uh, it's a question. What we did find was that, and this has been backed up by the HSRC household prevalence data, mm. young women are becoming infected Within a, within a younger age group because often they're becoming infected by older partners mm. who are five years 
or older than them who are positive. And that's how young women become infected, is by having unprotected sex with older men. So here we have the debate about blesses and about what we call, you know, the CCC, the power dynamics. And that has not fundamentally changed Mm. for South African women because the socio-structural conditions that... Wow. Haven't changed. Let's quickly take some voice notes before we, we come back to some more calls. Noon to you, P. Mello, and your guest. I mean, you can't blame apartheid for HIV and AIDS. Think about Freddie Mercury, the rock star from the group Queen. I mean, did apartheid kill that guy or infect him with HIV? I don't think so. It's too far-fetched and it's only a myth. Thank you from Chapter 2. I think Mike is misinformed by not believing in what the doctor is saying on the basis of just because it's a theory. We have a lot of theories, the theory of relativity, the theory of a lot of theories, and they help us in daily lives, and they are true. Uh, just because something is a theory doesn't mean it is it is false and it is misinformation. I think the doctor was giving some very powerful and valid information mainly here in Claremont. Well, good afternoon, uh, uh, Sister Pamela. I, I, I totally agree uh, with some of the things that uh, your guest is saying. Uh, you know, to say that uh, there's a, a little which is done now in terms of educating our people. And I'm saying that because it is something that uh, we always observe where we are staying. And the uh, young people, the way they are behaving now, uh, it seems like they've forgotten that uh, you know there is this thing uh, called HIV. And uh, I feel that uh, all those campaigns uh, that we we, we held uh, before, all those campaigns must be must be um, um, reinstated, and uh, like so that people they will you know begin to be educated and understand that this thing of HIV it is still existing, and uh, it hasn't uh, you know gone away. Uh, you know, simply because there is uh, no COVID-19, but in the HIV, it is still existing. And uh, I, I agree with your guest that, uh, you know, campaigns, they need, I mean, there is a need for campaigns to be, I mean, to be reinstated in our society. Thank you. This is Lindo from Ladies Meet as Kenny. All right, we're going to have to leave it there. But I think it's very important for us as SAFM to clarify some certain facts. And Dr. Hordes is here to maybe just give us a final wrap of this conversation. Um, That there is a massive distinction between uh, a disease that was created for a specific cause and people being opportunistic of an existing disease. And what came out of some reports from the TRC was not that there was something that was created to fight um, apartheid, to fight, you know, black people in apartheid, but that it was used opportunistically 
to spread it among black people. That is a very important distinction. And unless you hear that, you're obviously going to go into another different type of direction of theory. So Freddie Mercury was not South African, was not black. And so, of course, that excludes him. But there are out there studies and theories and evidence that the disease was spread by not many people, but some people to spread it amongst black people. Just a, a final word from you, Dr. Hordes. Thank you. Just to clarify, a recent New York Times study looked at exactly this conspiracy theory and, and discounted it. Mm-hmm. The, 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 the conspiracy theory exists mm-hmm. that AIDS is a biological war, w- weapon. Mm-hmm. The fact is that it wasn't. But what I'm saying is that the... The theory itself and the life of the theory, the existence of the theory, the popularity of the theory is what we have to understand. So what we have was to understand the theory? why people think that. So, Dr. Hordes, maybe so that everybody's on the same page, what theory are you referring to? The one that was created or the one that it was spread? That it was purposefully spread in a programmatic way. Okay. There is very little evidence in the archive. Mm. That it was a program, that it, there was a systematic operation, and actually, an investigation was done about this and dismissed the finding. Okay. Recently, a colleague are interested, they can find it in the New York Times if they search AIDS conspiracy theory. And mm-hmm. um, the theory exists. So then, to, to, the fact, uh, to respond, AIDS is not a biological weapon. So but to, let us look at why people think it is. Yes. So to respond to Michael, the theory exists, but it was tested. And it didn't meet the, you know, the test. So it was then dismissed. It was dismissed. Mm -hmm. But the fact that so many people still believe it Mm -hmm. means that it's important and we need to take seriously their ideas and engage with them. Mm -hmm. It's been wonderful talking to you. Thank you so much for being so open to all sorts of other things that came out of that conversation. It certainly went to to many different directions. Dr. Rebecca Hordes is a director of AIDS and Society Research Unit Center for Social Science Research Unit at the University of Cape Town.